I'm Lisa DeLay, and you're listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Today, my guest is Felina Hewerts. She spent nearly 20 years with her husband, Chris, serving with Word Made Flesh in more than 70 countries, helping victims of human trafficking, survivors of HIV and AIDS, and abandoned children, war brides and child soldiers. She's a spiritual director, the author of Pilgrimage of a Soul, a founding partner of Gravity, a center for contemplative activism, a spiritual director, public speaker, retreat guide, and today we're going to be speaking about her book, Mindful Silence, The Heart of Christian Contemplation. Maybe you can talk about when you met Father Thomas Keating and what he sort of brought new into your life. Um, at that point, you didn't really know much or anything about the contemplative way. And here you are now writing this Mindful Silence book. If you had known then what you've written in this book now, which would have been the most helpful to you? What in the book would have been the most helpful to me? Mm-hmm. Like, what did you? What do you think you needed to hear the most as far as the mm-hmm. contemplative way? Mm-hmm. That it's okay to stop. That it's okay to be. That it's not just okay, but absolutely essential to slow down and to breathe and to embody my life. One of the things that's been so helpful to me, and I know to you through your book, is learning about the spiritual journey is also part and parcel for rough patches and darkness. And um, when you encounter someone who's coming to you for direction and and they talk to you about deconstruction, what are some of the what are some of the things on their heart and some of the things you might tell them? Mm. Well, certainly some of the things on their heart is this sense of feeling lost and destabilized and um, as if they don't fit anymore into the you know not only the communities and the <clears throat> relationships and the religious structure that they've known but They don't fit into the paradigms of reality that they once ascribed to, like in terms of their identity and who they know themselves to be and who they understand God to be and uh, the nature of the world. And so uh, it can be very, um, you know, for a lot of folks, it's they're not even able to articulate all of that at the beginning. Um, It's just this sense of disorientation. Uh, So when we begin spiritual direction, we begin with what is most present and most real to their experience. And um, we find a way to, to meet there on that ground. um, Even if it feels like there's no ground to stand on. And then through uh, deepening our capacity for presence and for listening, um, you know, the individual begins to slowly find a place to stand, but it's, it might feel unfamiliar spiritually, psychologically. And then, and so we just, we just start with where, where the person is at and we give, um, we find a sense of okayness Mm. with, uh, things being with things feeling not okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's um, initially, uh, you know, I think it's, it's kind of comforting to the, the client because they, um, they just, they need to know that they're okay. Mm-hmm. And when people aren't used to coming into stillness and silence, how do you create an entry path for them? Mm. Yeah, uh, so it definitely takes time for most people to get acquainted and comfortable with silence and stillness. Uh, and we're talking about, um, you know, not just kind of 
growing comfortable with like a quiet room and sitting still, but an interior quality that is silent and still. Um, so I, I, I begin by being present to them where they're at, not forcing them to be anywhere that they're not comfortable being. And I create conditions um, of invitation into uh, the silence and the stillness. And, you know, just as I'm thinking about it now, uh, your questions are, are so um, intuitive and helpful to go into places of reflection that I don't often go on podcasts. And that I'm just thinking, you know, I, I really do think the the interior well that has been created in my own life through contemplative practice um, creates these kinds of spaces that are inviting for people. Um, and so it's something that isn't necessarily seen or heard or felt even, but it's, um, but it is the, the conditions that are necessary for someone to begin to taste in a way, um, what, what is, possible in terms of this contemplative dimension of life you know and I think in other ways we experienced that we experience this quality maybe um maybe at a museum and um looking at a particular piece of art or in an experience in nature that just kind of arrests our attention and we find ourselves um somewhat transported uh we have these experiences and I think a good spiritual director perhaps um, offers a similar kind of space and presence that, that one might be able to enter into it. Mm. Yeah, non-anxious presence is one of the things that I was, talked to, I was told about during some of my training when I was not whatsoever a non-anxious presence, and I'm still not, <laughs> still not a non-anxious presence. But, but in terms of joining up with somebody and not forcing things, not expecting things, just allowing the person to be and to just welcome whatever happens is also something so unfamiliar to people. Sometimes that itself is just an act of hospitality that, that opens up new opportunities. And I think the the problem is unfamiliarity, but the other issue is that some of those interior spaces go beyond words. Uh, there's no language, there's no English, or there's no human vocabulary for some of those places and some of those feelings. I know that um, for my own life and for other people I've spoken with, Sometimes as you get down into the silence, really troubling things pop up. As you're working with people and as they settle down into some silence and they, they can reflect and start asking themselves some questions and wounds come up or trauma or uh, embarrassing things, what do you sense that some of those reactions are in, in those people that you speak with? When they experience um, these kinds of interior troubling areas. Um, yeah, I think I, there's, there's a whole spectrum of response or reaction. Um, generally, there's quite a bit of fear and resistance. Uh, and... Um, in the spiritual direction session, it's it's my responsibility to support them in being as present as they can to what is. But this is this is a an art and a discipline that we've not been generally taught uh, in our uh, childhood and even adult life. Any kind of spiritual formation that most of us have received doesn't include uh, learning how to be present to what is. Instead, it's a kind of a straining for what we hope um, to be. So it takes time to develop the skills to, um, 
to be okay with being present to what is. And so if there is fear, if there is anxiety, if there is resistance, then we just take time to notice that. Can we just be present to the fear, the anxiety, the resistance? Can you see that? Can you pay attention to that? Do you see that arising in you? This kind of deep seeing, um, paying attention to what is, is incredibly liberating. And the more one um, develops the skills for it, uh, the more free they can be. And it, it takes, it's almost like a, like a, like a train, like if you think about your mind and you're on this train and you've been trained to, to operate one way with what is painful, what is perceived as negative, um, we, we just want to like kind of trail past that. We want to get beyond it. And, and we have that, that groove in us. Contemplative practice arrests that groove and actually offers like a different track. If you think of the train that suddenly is able to like, you know, switch tracks where, where that happens. Um, it's like the contemplative stance helps us um, have an option to choose a different track, which is not just um, blazing beyond or against what is, but um, being present to what is and, um, and letting it guide us and teach us and ultimately lead us from suffering and death into a resurrected life. The contemplative way is also, I've noticed for myself, and it appears that this is true from what, you're, what you've said in your book and in some of your interviews, is that it essentially changed your relationship with God, but, but in a sense, theology too, because instead of thinking who should be blamed, or you know, you're thinking what is, instead of who should get the blame for this, or... Mm who should pay or something, mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. It's more grace-filled in the sense of what do I see now? What, what is real? And then what should be my response? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, being able to quiet down and reflect back in, putting a pause there will, you know, grow the habit of not just reacting out of impulse and, and reacting in an angry or, or a runaway kind of kind of way. Of course, it takes mm-hmm. practice. But mm-hmm. as you've walked in the contemplative way and on these you know, years that you've been doing it, how do you see some ways you've seen the divine change or your relationship to God? Mm. There's this theme in my life of moving from certainty to doubt to faith. And you'll probably remember that from the book that, you know, is very life changing for me to realize that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but it is certainty. And that um, a life of faith is big enough to hold our doubts and our questions. And, uh, and so the contemplative path really, uh, revealed to me this what I was so certain about um, not being um, big enough to hold all of the paradoxes and contradictions I was encountering in life. Um, so my my certainty about God being a certain way, like um, a father figure or a father image, um, for example, or even a loving God, you know, I mean, this just life has a way of, of confounding, um, our greatest ideas about reality. And it's, it's like, if there, if God is a loving God, why is there suffering? You know? And, uh, and so all of my certainties about God, um, really began to crumble and I was, um, moved, I kind of moved into a place of, of doubting a lot of things about God. And then um, coming up and out on, on the other side in a place of what I perceive as greater faith and trust that I don't, 
I can't answer all of the big questions in life about why is there suffering. Um, what I have found in my own suffering is that God is present in it. Uh, even if I don't sense God or experience God in the suffering seasons of life, I um, can look back and see how God was present. So I have that experience when I enter into other sufferings um, that deepen my trust in my faith because in the unknown, I don't know. I can't know it with my intellectual, rational mind. And I think that's where the Western church in particular has done a disservice to us by overemphasizing the rational and intellectual approach to the religion. Um, because um, we can know all kinds of things in our mind. Um, we can know all kinds of scriptures, but when, you know, when the suffering hits, that doesn't help, <laughs> doesn't help to pull out, you know, the memorized scripture that God is love. It's like, well, I'm not experiencing God's love right now. That doesn't satiate. It doesn't help. It doesn't support this work that's happening in me that's challenging everything that I am, you know? Yeah. And I've I've had, you know, relationships, friendships with people who will go a very hyper-Calvinist way of saying, well, this is God's sovereign plan, so just, you know, put up and shut up. <laughs> but, I, but I also think that that is not a very relational, incarnational way of apprehending what's happening in suffering because Jesus and is speaking to God in relationship and embodying, stepping right into suffering and going right through it and not like smiling about it, but you know, like kind of saying, is there any other way? <laughs> also right. saying, you know, this isn't easy, but Jesus is present in his suffering, in others' suffering, you know, mm. but in his own suffering. So, so mm -hmm. it's not a like he's not running away from it either. So, so it's, I guess, the exemplar to us to. Um, not think that God is separated from suffering, but embodies it also, and mm -hmm. and then we're not to, supposed to gloss over it. And that's really one of the, I think, the false gods, if you will, of the the kind of uh, Christianity that I was raised in. Is that um, you know you have to be happy to be a Christian or there's something wrong with your faith and you have to be mm. joyful or you're ruining your witness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just thought, well, that doesn't give anyone who's like lost someone any mm. comfort because they're doing something wrong then to, mm. to really grieve and to really allow that hurt to happen. Yeah. You know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about the imagery of Jesus's um, crucifixion, you know, and it just seems to me that, he is the exemplar for the contemplative path. I mean, in him, we see one who is fully present to what's happening um, in the suffering, even doubts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, in the garden beforehand, please, you know, kind of resisting what's coming. I don't want this, you know, and, and we see in him, I mean, he truly is the icon for, for contemplation, for the, you know, contemplative spirituality. And then, of course, you know, the, the beauty of it all is that in the suffering, um, the suffering doesn't have the last word. The death comes, but new life emerges. And I think, you know, that's what I hope people will awaken to as they're struggling with various life circumstances, you know, that, that there is the possibility of new life through what you're going through. How can you be present to it and somehow, in a way, accept it um, so that you can be open to the newness that will come. Yeah, the dawn after the dark. Mm. Uh, and also, I think that it, if we aren't attentive to our suffering, as horrible as it can be, if, if we're not attentive to it, we really become callous to the suffering 
in others. We we start to go blind to it or or not really appreciate what that person is experiencing in in a full way. I, and it That's does right. it costs us something to experience other people's suffering. I mean, you probably know that very well. Um, and I I was interested to know that to know if after your work um, in humanitarian work, um, if you had trauma or issues that you needed to to get counseling for or extra help with psychologically mm-hmm. uh, like secondary trauma mm-hmm. you mean like yes. because of my work yeah because it was so mm-hmm. you know you saw horrific things you helped people suffering in some of the you know really worse situations yeah yeah you would think that <laughs> I would have needed it um, I received all kinds of therapy for other things in my own personal life, but, um, but I miraculously, you know, really didn't, you know, I, maybe I didn't end up needing particular counseling around secondary trauma because I took to the practice of centering prayer so quickly and so fully that, uh, that I, I do think there, you know, I agree with Thomas Keating that there is a divine therapy that takes place in the practice, and perhaps uh, a lot of that was uh, kind of healed and resolved in a way through the prayer. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about divine healing? I know um, he he spoke a lot about um, the deconstruction of self and that. And that dying that that takes the dying of ego that takes place, and maybe for people who are unfamiliar, uh, to lay the groundwork for understanding some of that. Mm, yeah. Well, in the in a non conceptual prayer practice, or uh, that's what we would call it more in the West. In the East, we might think of it as uh, as a meditation, like a silent meditation. Uh, there is this opportunity to open to uh, the work of the spirit in a way that um, maybe we don't give access to spirit otherwise. Uh, I think of um, the New Testament passage around um, the spirit prays for us in our weakness um, with groans and that sort of thing. Like, like we don't do the praying, but it's done in us and through us. Uh, My experience of centering prayer has been uh, a deepening, so the practice is a deepening um, action, really, of, um, of trust and faith. And by assuming a practice that, let, that is all about letting go, mm. um, which is really difficult for many of us, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And it's in the letting go that we are practicing trust and faith and the more we do that the more often we do that and over time as as we build up this inner gesture of letting go and trusting in our creator our source ultimate mystery uh, then then emotional wounds of a lifetime can be touched and healed it's just like it's a great mystery it's and it's very incarnational. So it's not just some kind of supernatural spiritual thing that's going on, but it's going on in our, in our flesh, in our blood, in our, um, in our tissues and fascia and in um, the rewiring of our brain. Mm. Uh, so it's just the most marvelous thing ever. I, <laughs> yeah. I like the metaphor of um, centering prayer being like, going into surgery where, uh, you know, when we, when we go under anesthetic, we are completely out of control. We are letting go and we are trusting the physician to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that's how it is in centering prayer. Like I am surrendering control and I'm choosing to trust God to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And the result in my life has been incredible. I mean, I, I'm just literally not the same person I was. I, I'm not as afraid as I was. I'm not as anxious. I'm not as stressed. I'm not as um, wedded to 
my need for approval and affection and esteem and uh, and kind of like ordering my I mean, if you knew me before, it's just <laughs> incredible, you know, it's like I used to have to filter everything I did through the lens of, will this achieve love for me? Will this help this person like me, love me, accept me, mm-hmm. approve of me? But, but I, you know, there were years before I even where, you know, I lived like that up until my, you know, probably gosh, late twenties, early thirties. And I didn't even know that's how I was living. It was just and unconscious. It was just it was habit, right? That's yeah, right. Yeah. Completely unconscious. And contemplation helped me wake up to that and realize, oh my gosh, like what a slave I've been to this. And I'm not that way anymore, you know? It's just like incredible. <laughs> yeah, you're really getting healed from the inside out. and, and Exactly. Yeah. Well, and also um, for people who who haven't experienced this, it does sound a little woo woo, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it really like when you say it and you haven't experienced it, you've just heard it. You're like, yeah, okay, sure. Um, mm-hmm. But it is really uh, where your heart and the deepest part of you says, "Not my will, but yours be Thank done." You. Right? Yeah. I I think it's it's a consent. Yeah. You know, it's not like. Because I remember, you know, growing up in the fundamentalist (laughs) arena that I was, I loved karate. This is a secondary thing. This has nothing to do with the fundamentalist part. But it was like, if you go to karate and they try to and they try to meditate, you just say a Bible verse. You just you just repel the devil. (laughs) I was like, I was like, okay. I was like, oh, no, maybe maybe a demon will enter me, you know. But I was like, you know, how about yeah, how about rest your mind or or meditate on on the Lord Jesus's name or whatever, but, but you're actually just quieting down your mind, but not just that in, in centering prayer, you're saying, not my will, Lord, just you're getting out of the way. And, and it's exactly what you need to to do to be rid of your, your, the hell of self. Right. Um, right. And so, yeah, I just, I just think um, when people actually, like it clicks like oh is that dangerous it's like it's the least dangerous thing you could do <laughs> um, yeah. because you actually get rid of the most um anxiety producing chatter and and the 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 most hostile part of yourself gets quieter yes yes that's right yeah it's uh it- it's interesting, you know, because it's such a radical form of, of trust in God. And it's, it's, it's just ironic to me that, that people think that's a practice of this nature, like in karate, like meditation, that this is somehow opening us to the devil. Because <laughs> it's like, I mean, at, what does that say of our view of God? That, you know, if our intention is to find peace, or if our intention is more even around, you know, surrendering to the will of God, then why would God allow harm to come to us? Like, Mm. that's not what we're doing here. Mm -hmm. This is a radical act of, of surrender to the will of God. And I, when I was first starting on the contemplative path, um, through the practice of centering prayer, I would return very often to the prayer of St. Ignatius, um, I wonder if I can remember it, something like, um, take, O Lord, and receive um, all that I, oh man, it's it's not coming to me at the moment, but it is this radical um, prayer of take it all, God, all of it belongs to you, I return it all to you, I fully trust you, you know, it's, it's um, a radical, like, I feel like in those words of the prayer of St. Ignatius, um, that describes what we're doing in a non-conceptual prayer practice or a meditation um, where we are relinquishing control and we are saying we trust God with all of who we are. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and then it's also hopefully becomes a prayer of, of your life that you it doesn't just stay in those moments it, it generalizes out and, and seeps into the moments of your day and your relationships exactly. yeah and exactly. I think that's when you see people will say hey what's different you know they'll actually notice something mm-hmm. is different about you that you're 
your pace is slower. Something is, your time is different. You're on a different clock or something. Yes. Um, and I think it's not like, and it's not like all your problems go away, but it, it is as if, it is as if you say, um, I actually do trust you, God. I actually do. Mm. Um, and I don't know how you work things out, but I'm also not that concerned because I put all my eggs in this basket yeah. <laughs> and you have the basket and I've just decided, you know, I've just decided that's how I'm going to live. And yeah. that is really strangely different um, than, than thinking you have to hold God's hand and like, <laughs> I don't know, there was a lot of, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but you know, um, in my previous years in Christianity, not that I'm not a Christian now, but but just in a different way of seeing Christianity, it's like, boy, if you don't tell this person this thing, everything could cascade in a terrible cascade of effects of, you know, you know, millions of people burning in hell because you didn't say this one thing, and you know, it was just kind of like, like as if God was so fragile and that he, God isn't speaking to people in their own hearts, and it all depends on you, and and just like how. Uh, strange a theology to think that um, that we can't trust God with with all things, and right. and sh certainly work in what God is doing already. But um, just the anxiety of like, what if God doesn't make it across the street without me holding God's hand? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. <laughs> kind of, I felt in the I mean, that might be particular to me, but I did feel like this enormous burden of responsibility to make sure. Um, everything was okay on my part, on my side. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, so in in that sense, I, I suppose our, our theology um, deepens, but it's also, I, I wonder too, it just hopefully we could become more hospitable people just in those ways too. Mm. Um. In what what part of your book has the most meaning for you, or do you, when you were writing it, you felt the closest to, or you had the most fun writing? Hmm. Probably the chapter on unknowing to know. Mm, yeah, that's my favorite, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Maybe for for someone who hasn't read it, could you um, describe it a little bit and some of what you said there sure so uh what i have come to appreciate um along the contemplative way is is this radical unknowing i've kind of been talking about it a little bit of uh, letting go of certainty and moving into greater mystery and letting god be god beyond our preconceived notions of who god is and in this chapter, I, I try and um, invite the reader along that path of finding courage, really, to enter into the unknown and to um, consider the, the possibilities of radical trust and faith. And you also talk about centering prayer at the end of this chapter, and the mm. cloud of unknowing um, is mentioned in that in that portion too. Mm. That's um, a really I'll, I'm going to provide links within uh, the show notes, and I'll also include a link to that resource, the cloud of unknowing. Great, um, as well as of course your book and your website and things like that. Um, let me just see here um, of these practices. In, that you mentioned in the book, um, I know you do centering prayer, but are there some other ones that you appreciate doing as much as that or nearly as much? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I appreciate all of the practices. I am, so centering prayer is set apart in that it is the only non-conceptual contemplative practice in the book. The others have kind of handles for our mind and can lead us into a non-conceptual practice. Uh, but I have just become so accustomed to the non-conceptual that centering prayer really is my 
my favorite and my go-to. Uh, but I think, you know, a number of people find the prayer of examine, for example, to be really helpful in growing and greater discernment. Um, in, in that particular practice, we, we learn to pay attention to our life and to the energies uh, at work in our life and within us. And so I, I do really value that one. And I, I, I will return to that on occasion, um, in particular when I'm in a season of um, needing to discern a decision of some sort. Mm. And do you ever use any kind of liturgy or guided prayer or something like that to feel um, when you don't have the words to pray that you want to pray um, cataphatically? Yeah, um, actually, I, I will often return to the daily readings uh, for just that connection to um, to the word, you know, that is alive and um, has the power to to not only speak to me, but to to pray through me. So that's I find that helpful. I know you talk a lot about uh, cultivating solitude, silence and stillness. And a lot of people, at least at first blush, might think, isn't that kind of all the same thing? <laughs> um, and solitude, silence, and stillness are distinct, but I would like to hear from you how you might describe those and, and then also how you might invite people to go more deeply into them. Sure. So solitude is, I, I understand solitude to be um, uh, the way in which we kind of withdraw from other people and other activities and we, um, we let ourselves be alone. Um, but I should qualify each of these by saying, as we attempt to create external solitude, silence, and stillness, um, the real work is uh, the interior solitude, silence, and stillness that we're cultivating. So the exterior and uh, attempts are really there only to support the interior posture of solitude, silence, and stillness. And so that means, you know, that, that it's not absolutely necessary that we get completely alone, um, though it may be helpful, especially in the beginning when we're um, just learning how to um, pay more attention to our life. So solitude is, is this withdrawal. Silence, then, is a quieting of my own voice and my own mind. And if I can, you know, create kind of a quiet atmosphere and environment, then that can be really helpful um, for this interior silence. And stillness, then, is, yeah, learning how to be still externally. And this, for some, is extremely difficult. And that's why... Um, a body practice can be really helpful um, for people who, who really can't sit still. And, and there are a lot of folks like that um, in our society today. And, and so I mentioned in the book the, the labyrinth prayer, walking prayer, um, and there's also hand labyrinths that can be helpful for people who really find it extremely difficult to be still. But once we achieve some kind of external stillness, even if it's a walking prayer like the labyrinth, um, there's a relative stillness happening because we're not engaged in other aspects of our life that then supports this interior quality of inner stillness. And when we create these conditions for solitude, silence, and stillness, we then notice that interiorly we are anything but uh, alone quiet and still that there is a lot of noise and chaos within us and this is the point for contemplative practice this is what we have to begin to wake up to and pay attention to and and really get help for and that's where divine therapy comes in as we, I'll just end this by saying, you know, as we cultivate solitude, we do develop this capacity to be more present to ourselves, to God, and to one another. As we practice silence, we develop this capacity to listen to ourselves, to God, and one another. And as we practice stillness, we develop this capacity for restraint or self-control, 
which gives us pause in life circumstances so that we just don't have like knee jerk reactions, but we are able to respond more often from our highest and truest self. And so I know you are a yoga teacher as well. Would you include yoga in the stillness practice? Well, yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to mention yoga or not. I, sure. I don't. Um, it's not a practice that I mention in, mm-hmm. necessarily in the book because it's not within the Christian tradition. But I, uh, it is a practice of choice for me as a body practice, and uh, and certainly as we're in a like a yoga asana practice where we're moving the body, even though the body isn't exactly perfectly still, it is um, creating a a stillness um, really interiorly that um, that is super helpful in the same way that a, a prayer practice can be. Yeah, as you were describing stillness and then you're saying a walk or a labyrinth walk, and then I'm thinking, well, that's not really still, but it, it changes the pace of the, the energy your body is kicking out, I guess. Yeah, yeah great way to put it. Uh-huh. Um, and stillness is really hard i i notice um i have two teenagers and i'm also not <laughs> i'm not very still like this isn't contemplative way is is totally not what comes naturally to me which is exactly why i need it which is exactly mm-hmm. which is exactly why i'm drawn to it i i feel like because it feels so healing mm-hmm. um and uh, as i started reading Thomas Merton in, in graduate school i was like where has this been my whole life uh because i knew if i had if i had Maybe I wouldn't have been ready, but if I had read some of Merton's things earlier, I would have found such a kinship there. And just in the stillness of, in a way, his writing style and how he saw the world, I think it would have drawn me in as a, excuse me, as a medicine. Um, And so that stillness piece is still something I feel like um, I got to, I I have to really be intentional about finding um and and um would you say that stillness is something that you should schedule or how do you recommend coming into more of that in your life Mm. oh man how how to include more stillness in one's life yeah how to include it and i guess be mindful to it i know that it can come from for me, it's more stillness has come from the solitude and silence, and out of that comes more stillness. But as far as, like, even just talking about stillness, I, I'm reflecting and I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I should, maybe I should be thinking about that a little bit more. Maybe I'm really not as still as I would like to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it just begins by paying attention, like you're saying, I, one of the thoughts that comes to me is like all the waiting time that we have in life in different ways. If it's waiting in the line at the grocery store or waiting in the traffic at the red light or, uh, any of the waiting time, which is super hard for us nowadays because we live in a kind of instant gratification culture, especially with our handheld devices. And we don't want to wait for anything just being uh, aware of that, um, we can start paying attention to all the opportunities there is to practice stillness. And I think returning to the breath um, it becomes really helpful here. So if I'm in line at the grocery store and I'm having to be relatively still and wait, uh, and I notice myself getting aggravated or agitated, just return to my breath and let this be a moment of rest and respite from you know, the harried, hurried, kind of busy lives that we all live. Um, But I was thinking it would be great if you could talk about gravity the Center for Contemplative Action, what you offer and, and some of those things if people would be interested in finding out more about that. Yeah, sure. So Gravity is a Center for Contemplative Activism and we're located in Omaha, Nebraska, in the heartland of the country. 
which I think is fitting for the work that we're doing. We offer spiritual direction, contemplative retreats, and Enneagram consultations and workshops. And so we are focused on helping very active people integrate contemplation into their lives. And, uh, and we do this um, here locally, and, um, and we work with people by phone and Skype, and then we um, travel all over the country and around the world uh, giving retreats and teachings. Hmm. And maybe you could speak a little bit to, um, I know Thomas Merton talks about this as well. He, he talks about if you, if you aren't good at being in solitude, um, you really aren't going to be good in community and, and vice versa. Um, and so the piece, adding those two pieces of activism and con- contemplation, um, why do you sense that that is so important? Mm. I... And have come to realize, and I see this more and more, that the reality of our external world is a reflection of what's happening inside of us. Mm. So we can see that on an individual basis in many ways and then on a collective level. Um, and, and so we can, and because of all my years in social justice work, I, I know what it's like to try and make the world a better place without dealing with um, the problems uh, inside of my own self. Mm. And we can only do so much and go so far with our external efforts to set the world right without doing the hard work of, um, of, of cleaning up our interior life. And so um, the, the two go hand in hand. Um, the more we give ourselves to action in the world, um, the more we are sort of brought to our knees with our own limitations, which brings us back into a, a posture of contemplation. And through contemplative practice, we begin to see our unconscious motivations and even our, our best intentions that can cause more harm than good. And so all of that begins to get worked out as well. And interiorly and then we're able to offer a better version of ourselves um in the healing of the world so the two just necessitate you know working together mm. and now that you're on on this side of the the missions work or, or whatever um if you could go back in and reorganize, would you have like spiritual director on, on staff or maybe you already did have one on staff, but like, Um, what do you think is the, what do you think um, is that really tended to Is soul care really tended to among those types of organizations? Uh, Well, our, our organization certainly didn't know much of anything about all of this. So Mm -hmm. I, um, Mm -hmm. when I woke up and kind of, uh, committed myself to the contemplative path. Uh, that was about, I had about eight more years in the organization. Mm-hmm. So, um, before I started gravity. So I began to try and offer what I was learning to the mm. organization. And there were certainly, um, there was certainly a, an awareness around self care, uh, and preventing burnout and those types of things. But, uh, the organization as a whole didn't, understand um, or fully appreciate the the need for contemplation so um, we ended up eventually leaving that organization to devote ourselves full-time to helping people wake up to the value of contemplative practice and so looking back you know if I were going to be running an organization like an organization like that today it would be absolutely integral um, to the that the social work would um, contemplation would be integral to that. So we would have a standard and an expectation for um, some kind of contemplative practice individually and collectively, and it would just be a non-negotiable. Like this is this is what we do here. We we have spiritual practice and we have social practice. You know. Mm, yeah. It's it's um I I don't know if that's ever approached in um I guess you have first you have to have people with a heart for it in the first place but people who are setting up nonprofits or um 
parachurch organizations or something, even really church, because I don't know if most pastors have spiritual directors. I'm not aware that really many do, but it just is, is really interesting when you're on the front lines and you have all of your own things uh, going on that that would be so overlooked. And I realize that's part of the tradition of probably Protestantism kind of throwing spiritual direction to the curb. But um, now, you know, with with addictions of different sorts really peaking and, and suicides and people really kind of going off the rails on a regular basis in leadership positions mm. and all the cover-ups, like it, when, mm. when that happens, you realize there's a very very ill body you know um church body mm -hmm. like roundly you know? <laughs> um this wouldn't happen if there was really good soul care happening and really good interior work happening I don't, yes um and so it's grieving to me um mm -hmm. but you know it's hard to redesign it uh, once it's made i guess once an organization yeah. created yeah well, thank you so much for being on my podcast. It was really a delight to have you. Yeah, it was wonderful to meet you. Thanks for the invitation. Will you mm -hmm. email me when you mm -hmm. get it live? Absolutely, sure. Yeah. Okay. Hope to I have you on again. Thank you. Thank you for your good work.